The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. In 1926, a book was written. It was entitled, Four and a Half Years of Struggle Against Lies, Stupidity, and Cowardice. The publisher said, hey man, that's too long. And so they changed the title to My Struggle. Um, in German, you may have heard of it, it's called Mein Kampf. It's a book where Hitler laid out his ideas, especially about Germans, Jews, his plans for a national socialist party. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. But we learned something there if we're paying attention. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Uh, the nation of China became communist in 1949. Now, there's a package of ideas right there, communism, ideas about humanity, economics. And in 1978, China had another idea, and they mandated a one-child policy, so it would include forced sterilizations, abortions. There were some other ideas involved as well from cultural backgrounds, ideas of religion and tradition that made it to where families strongly preferred to have a male child instead of a female. And so with all these ideas together, totalitarian power of communists, communism, one-child policy, a preference for male children over females, well... Nobody wants a baby girl anymore. I've got a quote for you from Christoph and Wu Dun in their research, and they reported that more girls have been killed in the past 50 years than men in all the wars of the 20th century, and they mean due to abortion and infanticide. In countries like China and India, hearing it's a girl is not a cause for celebration, it's a death sentence. Doesn't that just break your heart? It's unfathomable to think of those kind of numbers. As a father of two daughters, it's, it's crushing. You realize just how deeply ideas have consequences. It said that by 2020, China will have something like 40 million extra men. Talk about a problem, Okay. <laughs> societal problems, ideas have consequences. And by the way, bills have been pro proposed to outlaw sex-selective abortion here in America, but so far, uh, to my knowledge, they've been rejected. Ideas have consequences, and we know, don't we? It's not just the big picture level of countries and governments. All these things were ideas that started in the human mind, right? Human desires flowing from the human heart and so we need to see here, as we think about big picture things, we also want to think about intimate things. Ideas have consequences in our lives as well. How I think and what I desire and what I prefer, how I explain things, it affects my everyday life, my time, my work, my leisure. What you want and how you strive to get that affects how you value and treat others in your life. At the core of who you are are these values, these attitudes, these ideas. 
And in your life, in my life, our ideas have consequences. And some of the ideas we have are explicit, right? We can name them, we can talk about them, we believe in them. Some of the worst ones are the ones that are maybe a little more hidden. Working behind the scenes, you may not always notice them, but you feel them strongly. And they affect you and others, especially in times of stress or conflict. On every level, ideas have consequences. And you know, the Bible is, is not late to this party. It's been saying this from the beginning. For instance, think of the question, every worldview has to answer this question, why is humanity such a mess? What does the Bible say? Well, the problem started with some bad ideas. Uh, do you remember when uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan came and tempted them? Uh, how did Satan roll this? What did he offer? Ideas. Like this one. You know, God isn't very good. What does that idea do for you? God isn't very good. He won't really satisfy you or take care of you. Where's that idea going to take you? Oh, well, there must be something else. Satan also said, hey, God's word is not trustworthy. When he says something, he says it's going to be good. It's not. Don't listen to him. Where's that idea going to take you? I better listen to somebody else. And then, then Satan said, you know what? Since God's not good and you shouldn't listen to him, you could be like God. Maybe you're better than he is. Maybe you're more trustworthy. And uh, I guess Adam and Eve bit the hook, so to speak. And that one terrible idea bred a million others that left us wrecked, Right? So what do we do today, Christians, in a world of bad ideas, and if we're honest, in hearts and minds with some bad ideas still? Because ideas have consequences, especially on something like Sanctity of Life Sunday. You know, once a year we join with thousands and thousands of others in remembering the value of every human life, especially the unborn. And you could ask, and I ask myself this sometimes, why bring something like this up? It's, it's controversial. It's painful. Many of us in our lives have been touched by this issue in some way. And I want you to know the last thing I want to do is condemn or hurt or offend anybody. I mean that from the heart. But I guess I believe, we believe, God's word has something to say to every aspect of life. And his word heals us and it helps us. And not only does God have something to say, God seems to think we should have something to say as well. And so that's why we think about this. And so let's just remember, take a step back, that as we think about these things, we're safe. Why are we safe? Well, you're safe because even if you disagree with me, I still love you and I'm glad you're here. But even bigger reason we're safe is that um, if you feel deep guilt or regret about this or anything else in your life, Jesus saves us from that. He earns our forgiveness so we can be safe in his presence to listen. I want to spend a little time in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the second letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And as you'll know if you've read these, the church in Corinth, they had some serious problems that stemmed from some very bad ideas. There were power-grabbing personalities spreading these bad ideas in the church. And so for the church's own good, the Apostle is defending his role in their lives and as he does this, he brings this up this idea on how Christians fight, which 
I think is an interesting subject. How do we fight? And so we're thinking of the big, the big issue of sanctity of life. We're thinking of the more intimate issue of our own hearts and minds. We've got these two things going on. And we've seen ideas have consequences. So with all that out there, now we're looking at these four things. Number one, in the context of how Christians fight, we're going to see what our weapons are not. That's really important. What we don't fight with. Number two, we're going to see what we're supposed to be fighting against. Because if you're a Christian, you're a warrior for the Lord, the Bible says, and we fight. So what are we fighting against? What our weapons aren't, what we're supposed to be fighting against. Then we're going to see what we're fighting with. What are our weapons? And last, what are we supposed to be fighting for? Okay, are you ready? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. I hope you follow along. Did I say chapter 10, verse 1? Page 969, I hope you follow along. Let's start with what he says our weapons aren't in verse 4, okay? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the what? Flesh. And what's that? Flesh. Well, biblically, this, this word is used in two very different ways. One is your body, your skin, your muscles, okay? Flesh, that's good. The Bible likes the body. Uh, number two, the way to understand it is pride, uh, selfishness. So which one of those usages, flesh, or weapons are not of the flesh, which one of those is Paul using here? What do you think? I'm going to go with both. I'm going to go with both. Our weapons are not of the flesh. So what's a fleshly weapon? You want to hurt somebody's flesh? What's a weapon you use? A sword, a gun, okay? Physical pressure. Listen, other religions may use physical force to enforce their beliefs, and we are ashamed to say Christians have as well, but that's not the way it should be. Okay, that was wrong, that was foolish, that was uh, misguided, not Christians. We don't use weapons of the flesh to spread the kingdom of Jesus. Number one is, it doesn't work. Okay, it just doesn't work. So imagine you're going to go play a pickup basketball game and you wear your hockey skates. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to lose, and you're going to cause a lot of destruction, okay? If you want to spread the kingdom of God, can you do it with a gun? Hey, believe in Jesus or else, right? So say the person is scared and say, okay, I believe. Except, do they really believe in Jesus? Did you really change anything? No, they just didn't want to get shot, right? The weapon doesn't work. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to score a layup, hockey skates would get in the way it's the wrong weapon for the wrong fight, okay? We don't use physical weapons. You don't grow the kingdom of God with weapons of the flesh. I guess for today, that means you don't shoot up clinics. It doesn't spread, it doesn't, it doesn't win our fight. Now, of course, disclaimer, can you serve Jesus in the military or as a police officer? Of course. That's really a different subject. Can you, can you serve God in some cases with physical self-defense for your family? Sure, of course, different subject. But when it comes to our, our fight and the weapons we use, our weapons for the fight we're in, they're, they're not of the flesh. They're not physical weapons, but they're not prideful weapons either. And I'm not talking about the healthy kind of pride, right? You can have a, a, a thankful satisfaction in something good. You know, you watch your kid at a ball game. They smack a line drive. You're pr you feel pr proud of your kid. That's good. That's good. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the 
The Bible uses the word pride to mean an in, a selfish inclination against God that, that dethrones him and enthrones self. Everything becomes about self. That's the flesh. I'm in charge. I want what I want. I think we need to remember that Christian weapons shouldn't be prideful. The more they're prideful, the less they're Christian. And this means when we quote-unquote fight, right, should we be dominating, controlling, manipulative, intimidating? How do you fight for Jesus without the character of Jesus? You saw what Paul wrote in verse 1, right? Paul, as he, he speaks to this church, he says, I am myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to be humble. Uh, I want to reach you on your level. I'm not, I'm not better than you. I care about you. Or look at this verse from 2 Timothy 2.24. I need this so many times. I think we all need it in our relationships. And the Lord's servant must not be what? Quarrelsome. You're not serving Jesus when you're just arguing, arguing, arguing. Not be quarrelsome, but what? Kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Wow, that's another sermon all its own. Correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Who's the only one that can change a heart? It's God. And so when we engage in, a, in the fight, so to speak, we need to have the character of Christ, which is what? Humility, gentleness. Doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. Of course not. But it's all about our, our manner and our aspect and how we do that. Relationships are important. And I, I guess the irony is it's hard to argue for the value of human life if you don't value the human life that's next to you. It's hard to argue for the sanctity and the value of one life and not for the other. In fact, that's what the world is doing. One kind of life is good and important, but the other kind we don't care about. That's exactly the opposite of what a Christian should be. Uh, so we don't fight with weapons of the flesh. That's so important, so important, physical or prideful. Okay, so next, what are we fighting against then? Verse 4 again, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What is a stronghold? Uh, my family and I uh, were so privileged about a year ago to visit London for a couple days, and we went to the Tower of London. It's amazing to see the history of that building, and that's exactly what this thing was for hundreds of years, a stronghold. So think of a castle. You know, there's like 66 times this word stronghold is in the Bible. Only one of them is in the New Testament. The rest is in this Old Testament context where it's a place where you run when the enemy's coming. It's a place of military power. So what's a stronghold trying to do? If you have a castle, it's stubborn strength that keeps the opposing army and its influence out. It's a place that won't give up. It won't give up. We read in prayer this morning, God is our refuge. God is our stronghold. Awesome. But what is Paul saying we want to take down? What do we want to destroy? Strongholds. Well, what is he talking about then? It's not castles, obviously. Now look at verse 5. In verse 4 he says we want to destroy strongholds. In verse 5 he says we destroy, what is it? You see it? We destroy strongholds arguments and every lofty 
opinion. The strongholds are bad ideas. Ideas have consequences. And the strongholds, the stubborn places, bad ideas. And what, what makes them bad in verse 5? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against what? The knowledge of God. The worst kind of an idea is a kind that's a lie. And if it doesn't acknowledge who God is and what he's done in his truth, then the idea itself isn't true. And it's also going to be warped in some way and destructive. So our arguments are against, what do you want to call it? Godless ideas? That's what we're fighting? Those are the strongholds? So, uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, what's an example of a stronghold idea in our culture that needs to come down? So we're looking at a bad idea that rejects God, and it's bad for others. Let me give you one example, okay? The Supreme Court had a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, and this uh, decision reaffirmed a constitutional right to abortion, but it included in it what was called a mystery clause, which was part of the argument, and here's the line I want you to see. Look at what the court said. Supreme Court. Remember, the context of this decision is to affirm rights to abortion, okay? That's what we're talking about here. So look what the court said. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That's interesting. Big question is, when it comes to truth, do you discover it or do you invent it? Which one is it? Do you discover it or do you invent it? You know, scientifically, you want to see how something works biologically. You don't just, I think I want it to work this way. You don't invent it. You discover it. You test it. You, you have a theory, but then you test that theory and say, yeah, I'm discovering how it works. Okay? What about moral truth? Uh, what about the meaning of life truth? Do you invent it? You make it up? Or do you discover it? Huge question. The court seemed to be saying at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept. You get to make it up. You get to decide. And because you define your own meaning, that's why, the court said, that's one reason, a reason, that you should have abortion on demand. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. This is an old line, right? We define our own truth. What, what, what was Satan saying in the garden? You make it up. You make it up. And look at human history, okay? It won't take long for you to discover a truth, and that is this. When we define our own truth, instead of discovering truth from God, we demean others. When that idea catches on that you make it up for your own sake, you define it, you'll demean others. Oh, you read the, you read the prophets in the Old Testament, right? And... Um, And they're constantly coming against the rich and the unfair systems of the government where those in power, hey, we're better. And they would demean the poor or the weak. Or we we talked about China just briefly. One gender demeans another gender. Uh, Male children are more valuable, that idea said. It's an idea. Or one race demeans another. We know that story, right? 
or the autonomous postborn, I guess, if you want to use words like this, demean the, the, uh, the unborn. There's a guy named Calvin Freeberger who wrote a great article, if you want it, I'll give you the link, on the unmistakable parallels between abortion and slavery. I'll just give you a couple, there is a bunch. Both denied the humanity of an entire class of people based on some, some human standard, right? Race, level of development. Both claim to be on the cutting edge of human enlightenment, modern thinking. Both claim, this gave me the chills, it was for the victim's own good. They never asked the victim's opinion in these things, you know? Both were sustained by horrendous Supreme Court rulings. And then one I wanted to add, both were massive money-making machines. Massive money-making machines. Those are hard to give up. But the point is this idea. When we define our own truth apart from God, we demean the value of others. That's a stronghold. It's a stronghold in our culture. And it needs to come down, right? It needs to come down. It doesn't work. It's not true. It's harmful. It's painful. But here we have, to, we have to pause a little bit too and not just think out there. You got any strongholds in your own brain? Your own heart? If you find people that you treat a certain way and maybe if you're honest, you're a little guilty about that, there might be a connection between some ideas in your heart and your mind like on what they deserve uh, why you don't need to fully forgive them, why reconciliation isn't important. And those ideas have consequences. So, you know, it's, it's easy, it's so easy. I, I, I could be the best at this in the whole world because I'm a pastor and I read the Bible and I preach sermons. And so all my, all my targets could be out there, you know, I'm shooting at the bad ideas in culture. Um, but it's easy for, for me not to look at my own strongholds because I have them. Look at your, uh, when, when you're bitter, when it, when it comes out too sharp. Um, look at your anxieties. Strongholds. That's our enemy. That's what we want to fight. Okay, so what do we fight with? What are our weapons? Well, you pick up some clues here in verse four and five. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. So what kind of gun is this, man, that shoots... God's power. Uh, it has divine power. It destroys strongholds. And then it also says we're against every opinion that's against the knowledge of God. So, hmm, what do you think? What's the best way to fight a bad idea? What's the best way to fight a lie? If the problem is a lack of the knowledge of God, what's the fix? Seems like you fight a lie with the truth. It seems like you fight a lack of the knowledge of God with the knowledge of God. And then what kind of weapon, have you, heard, have you heard of anything, a weapon with divine power? Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter six. He tells Christians there, take up the what? The sword of the spirit, rad, which is what? The word of God, the word of God. And then he says, it's so important, praying at all times in the spirit 
two things to, to realize. The sword is the word of God. So it's God's revelation, right? And we, we know that to be the Bible. But the power here is in God's truth applied by God's spirit. The spirit powerfully applies the word of God. So what's our weapon? God's truth applied by the power of spirit. And where do you find God's truth? His word. He's spoken. That's our sword, okay? Now you remember our culture, the Supreme Court in that line seemed to say that the individual defines truth. You don't discover it. What's God's word say? You don't, define, you don't invent truth. You receive it. You discover it. And I said to you earlier, ideas have consequences, and when you invent your own truth, you're going to demean others. Well, what if you receive truth from the God of the Bible? If you invent truth and you demean others, when you receive truth, what are you going to do? You're going to dignify others. You're going to dignify others. James is bringing this up to a church. Look at what he says in James 3.9. Now, he's kind of... He's, he's disciplining them right now with this line. But look what he says. With our speech, we bless our Lord and Father. Right? We all did that together today. Who is this king of glory? That's great. And then, sadly, what might we do again today or this week? We curse other people who are what? What's the key? They're made in the image of God. God, I love you so much. You're so great to me. So why are you demeaning those who are in my image? It's a connection here. If you love God, who else will you love? Others. And what's, what's the distinction here? Why should you not speak insultingly of people in a demeaning way? Because they're made in the image of God. Okay, how do you get that? Real good question. How do you graduate to being in the image of God? I like to think it's education. The more education you have, the more you're godlike, right? And if I do that, that puts me above of some of you. I'm up here, you're down there. Okay. You're like, no, 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 that doesn't do it. What about race? Humanity's full of this one. Every race is guilty. I'm this race, oh, but you're that race, so I'm better than you. I can demean you. Or if you're thinking of the sanctity of life, ah, I am a mature human being with autonomous choice-making decisions, and you are helpless and um, dependent, so therefore I can do with you as I please. No, wait, none of those things, none of those standards get you the standing of made in the image of God? What is it that gets you that infinite value of being preciously made in the image of God? What do you need for that? You just are. That's it. You are a human being made in his image. And look at this verse from Romans 13, 8. You know the two main commandments, right? Love the Lord with all your God, all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And the next one is like it. Like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Look at what Paul says in Romans 13, eight. Owe no one anything. Owe except one thing. To what? Love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. That's interesting. So what do I owe you? I don't owe you nothing. God says I do. What do I owe you? Love. What do you owe me? Love. What do you owe you? Love. Why? Did you sign up for this or something? I promise to love you if you love me. No, you never signed up for this. You didn't get the choice. God has revealed his truth. And God has said, those who are made in my image must love those who are made in my image, period. End of story. Every human is worthy of and deserving of love because God has said so. Everyone, the unborn, even your enemy. True freedom is self-giving service to others. How do you know? Because God does it. Jesus did it. He made you for it. So, bad idea, I invent my own truth, I demean others. Good idea, I discover truth, I dignify others. Fight the bad idea with the good idea. We want to bring down strongholds that are against the knowledge of God. And our weapon is the truth of God applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. God works through us. So why are we, what are we fighting? Ideas against the knowledge of God. What are we fighting with? God's revealed truth, the word of God by the power of his spirit. All right, last one, what are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? Paul says at the end of verse five, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's a funny image. You imagine a line of prisoners, I guess. Chains on their wrists or something. And who owns, and, and these, this line of prisoners are thoughts. Thoughts and who owns them. Christ. Is that, the, is that the way we should see it? Huh. You know, just in this same book, Paul talks more about the knowledge of Christ. Doesn't he, talk, doesn't he seem to be talking about the knowledge of Christ? Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. So the, so the point, when I'm, when I'm preaching or when you're sharing truth with others, the point is not our own Glory, our, our headlining, right? It's, it's not what we're proclaiming. What are we proclaiming? Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul doesn't just talk about thoughts being captive to Christ. He loves to talk about himself being captive to Christ. And he doesn't talk about it like chains. He talks about it like freedom. He loves to serve Jesus Christ. Look at verse six. I love verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You remember the story of creation? Everything's dark. God says those famous words. Let there be light. Psh, light switch. The sun. Ah! Stars. So awesome. 
God does that in people too. When he says, let there be light. And what is it that you see when the light comes on in verse six? He's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge. So this kind of knowledge is like participatory knowledge. Like Adam knew Eve and they had a son. (laughs) Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know you like Mexican food? You didn't just see a picture in the menu, right? You ate the guacamole. And you said, yes, this I know. Okay? It's participatory. A lot of times, players like coaches who have been players. Why? Because they know. They know. You can know about marriage, and then you get married, and you still don't know, but you knew more. (laughs) Knowledge is participatory in the Bible. And so when God turns on the light here, the knowledge of what? The glory of God, so his awe factor, his wow factor, his beauty, his strength, his righteousness, his holiness, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of whom? Jesus. Taste it, participatory. Oh, Jesus. You know, do you see him for who he is? Do you know? Do you know who he is? Have you... Have you had God turn the light on in you? We say, I need Jesus. I love him. He's the best. There's nothing like him. I I know this. That's knowledge, as Paul's saying it. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's an idea that will have a consequence. What kind of a consequence in your life has the idea of this is where glory's at? It's Jesus. Good ideas have consequences too. This one will transform you. It'll change you. So what's Paul's goal here? I want to take every thought captive to the knowledge of God specifically in Christ. The goal is, remember, demeaning the knowledge of God is, "Uh, God, you're not good, I don't want you. Experiencing the true knowledge of God is saying, Jesus, you're the best, and I want you more than anything. That's the goal. Bringing people to the knowledge of Jesus that loves him. And that, well, I mean, he said earlier, our weapons have divine power. Power. Power of God. Does does that phrase, the power of God, bring up any memories to you? Look at Romans 1.16. This is the idea right here. I'm not ashamed of the what? The gospel, not a shame. I want everybody. I, I want everybody to hear it. I want everybody to know it. I love this. This is the this is the ultimate idea. This is the truth right here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? That's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the weapon. That's the idea. Who Jesus is and what He's done. Listen, we can all stand here on equal, Sanctity of Life Sunday, let's all stand here on equal, equal ground, okay? Who sinned by dethroning God in their heart and demeaning others? Okay? We're all here together. We have different looking sins, but, you know, the law of God is like a 100-yard jump, and maybe 
one of you can jump two feet, maybe I can jump three, maybe one of you can jump 10 feet. None of, none of, none of us made it to being good enough. We've all sinned. And maybe if you are connected somehow to this issue or to abortion, you know, only, only God knows the pain and the guilt that comes from that. But here's what we need to see. This is the power of God to look at Jesus. He did the good we shouldn't, we should have done but didn't, right? He's the one who never dethroned God but honored God and loved God. And he always loved his neighbor with perfection, He did the good we should have done but didn't, and he gives that to us as a free gift through faith in him. Second thing to see, he paid the price we deserve to pay for our evil and selfishness. We deserve judgment for denying God and demeaning others. Jesus paid the price instead. Jesus loved his enemy, the undeserving, the hard to love, me. He took upon himself the just anger of God so that there's none left for all who trust in him. Romans 8 said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So God doesn't have any more of you're so evil and you deserve to pay for it. Isn't that great? Do you still feel like he does, by the way, sometimes? Don't you think he's up there glaring at you? Um, you, You've done wrong and you deserve to pay for it. That's condemnation. You've done wrong and you deserve to pay for it. Romans 8 1 says there's none left. It's all drained out. I mean, he had some. He had a lot. But it's all drained out. He poured out every drop of it on Jesus in your place. He took upon himself the judgment we deserve to pay. So there's none left. You can be totally forgiven just through faith in Christ. He took our sin and shame and guilt upon himself and did away with it, took it into the grave. God, I'm so ashamed of what I've done. I regret so much. It's true, but let it die with the Lord. Let it die. He took it. He wore it. And he rose from the dead. He won. He beat sin and death. One day he'll return to bring justice and renew all things. Everything he is and everything he's done is personally yours by faith. What an idea this gospel is, that you can be perfectly loved and accepted without having to earn it, that you can be totally forgiven no matter what evil you've done. What an idea, that you can have a new life in God as an adopted child of God. What an amazing thing. What an idea, this gospel. It's the power of God. And you know, when you see Jesus like this, you see his love for you, you see his character, his wisdom, his strength. Don't you kind of want to be his captive? You know what? That's exactly what I want to be. I want him to own me because he does it like a shepherd because he's so gentle and so kind. And what what does the psalm say? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist is saying, God, you're, every, you're my rock, you're where I run to. And because of that, I want every single thing and I think and every single thing I feel to please you. I want all my thoughts captive to you, Lord Jesus, so that you're king. You're king over what I think and what I feel. When you see the power of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done, his love for you, what are you doing now with your thoughts? 
Don't you want to please him in everything? What are you going to do with these strongholds? Your heart, your mind. Are you ready to hand over the keys to the one who lived and died and rose for you? That's what Paul's saying. That we would see who Jesus is and love him and devote ourselves to him. Give ourselves to him, our king of glory. So here's what we should see on this Sunday. Ideas have consequences. It's important. What you think, what you feel, what the culture thinks. So the most important thing for us is to see Jesus and trust him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He makes us right with God by his grace through faith. And as you trust him, fight, fight, fight the strongholds in your life, the place that, that are against the knowledge of God that are still prideful. Surrender them, every thought captive to him because of his love. And then also as we can, we should fight the strongholds in the world, shouldn't we? Speak, work, give, vote, serve for the value of human life. Because truth isn't invented by us to where we demean others. Truth is received to where in God's power we dignify others because they're made in his image. Let's pray. Father, I just want to surrender my pride to you. The strongholds you know are still there in my heart and my mind. And I want Jesus to have his way. Lord, we pray that for each one of ourselves, our church, God, that we would continually lay at your feet every lie we believe, everything in us that has us demeaning others. Free us, Lord, to a new knowledge of your son, his beauty, his love. And as we're thrilled by who he is, let us just want him to be king over every aspect of our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. Um, And God, as we surrender to you more and more, we do pray you would use us as well uh, in this world, that you would help us speak to um, the lies that are out there with your truth, with your love, by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.